can be found on the inside of your, actually I think it's on page 4, and we're looking at Romans 5, um, 6 through 8. As we continue on in our series, Who Am I? Finding Your Identity in Jesus Christ. So this is the Apostle Paul preaching or uh, writing to the church at Rome. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The word of the Lord. I was on the great uh, seeing eye Sauron, known as the internet, and looking at uh, various pieces of information, and I came across this age-old question. Uh, If a tree falls in a forest and no one is around to hear it, does it make a sound? It's been uh, debated endlessly since the dawn of the ages. It's uh, one of those age-old philosophical questions you might have had in college, a question of uh, objective reality as opposed to subjective experience. And as I was uh, pondering this, I I sought wisdom from others that uh, have weighed in on this, and I found some other equally difficult questions. For instance... If a man says something in the forest and no woman is there to hear it, is he still wrong? I think that's a deeper question, isn't it? I preferred this answer to this question. If a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it, then my illegal logging business is a success. Or my favorite favorite twist on this age-old question, if a tree falls in the forest, do the other trees laugh at it? It's a good question. It is the question, though, as we turn to spiritual questions of subjective experience versus objective reality. And for many of us, our Christianity is based on subjective experience. Our Christianity is like a a thermometer that rises and falls with how we're feeling. And so Paul, as he writes this masterful treatise, this this, uh, summa, if you will, of what Christianity is all about, has turned to a new section. In fact, we see here that really love for the first time is communicated. The word love in Romans 5, 5 and 5, 6. Paul is trying to communicate something to us. He's trying to communicate something to the church at Rome to help us to understand that Christianity is more than simply how I'm feeling, where I'm at. That Christianity is based on something external to us. Indeed, something that Jesus Christ has done, a foundation upon which we can stand. And so that is what we are going to be taking a look at today. The fact that God's love is not a subjective experience, but rather an objective reality. And so we must base our Christianity not simply on how we feel, but rather on what he has done. And so in this passage, 6 through 8, we can see three definite uh, sort of topics that we need to discuss. Number one, what is the object of Christ's love? Where has he put his love? Who has he put his love upon? What is the object of his love? Number two, there is a timing of his love. Christ has come into the world at just the right time, as the scripture says. And then finally, the measure of his love. 
can we understand how much is the love that God has lavished upon us? As we come and break down this question about subjective experience and objective reality. So let's look at this passage uh, with our first topic, the object of his love. Now, if you remember, we've already started through Romans 5, 1 through 4, and we've seen some amazing things. In verse 1, we discovered that we have, therefore, the Christian, having been justified by faith, has peace with God through Jesus Christ. Indeed, the Christian can rejoice in the certainty of the glory of God, that the Christian will see God in his glory and also will ultimately attain to the glory that they were designed for. We even saw last week that we can rejoice in suffering. We can boast in suffering because we know that God is behind the suffering in the sense that he is molding us and shaping us into his likeness and showing us his love and giving us victory in the midst of that difficulty. So I really should have read Romans 5 as I continued on because we see there's a 4 in Romans 6, right? Not the letter 4, but the first word. And so Romans 5, 5 says, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is the first time love is mentioned since the first chapter and that uh, was sort of a greeting where love was used. So, Paul is turning the corner and he's speaking about love, this love that has been poured into the hearts of people who love him. And so he wants to continue this thought about the pouring of love into the hearts of Christians. So we turn to uh, verse 6 where he explains, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. We see he's speaking to we, who is we, for while we were still weak. He's speaking to the Christian. The Christian at Rome, the Christian, if you are a Christian, sitting in the pew currently. And he refers to we in three different ways, doesn't he? He refers to we as weak. He refers to we as ungodly. And he refers to them also as sinners, Weak, ungodly sinners. For while we were still weak, ungodly, and sinful, Christ died for them. Well, this is a strange word, weak. What is he referring to when he says weak? Because when we think weak, we normally think physical weakness. But no, he's speaking of moral weakness. He's speaking of a lack of righteousness, a lack of character. Those who are morally weak, those who are not able to attain to the strength of righteousness. Those are the weak people that he's talking about. Those who don't make the cut, if you will. But not only are they weak, but also ungodly. Think a little bit about this. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Well, what is ungodly? It is the opposite of godly, right? There's godly, And on the other side of the spectrum, there's ungodly. And so we have a picture here of Christ who is God, the godly, dying for the ungodly. White dying for black, if you will. Up dying for down. North dying for south. The opposites. We were weak, ungodly, and sinners. The word sinner, by the way, if you don't know it, It comes from the Latin and it means to miss the mark. It was an archer's term. 
if you would shoot a bow and arrow and you did not hit the target, you would say, I sinned. In other words, you missed the mark. You fell short, so to speak. As the scriptures say that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It was just in Romans 3 that we hear this scathing rebuke of humanity as Paul lays out the offenses that God has against man. For we have already charged, says Paul, that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have begun worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul is speaking of humanity. The ungodly. And yet these are the very people that Christ died for. Paul is laying out the reality of the love of God. And so he makes a comparison in verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. Scarcely a righteous person anyone would die for. Well, that makes sense. The Bible is full of uh, the, the prophets. They come, the righteous people. And what does the people do? They stone the prophets, right? In fact, no prophet is welcome in his hometown, says Jesus. And no one can die outside of Jerusalem. No righteous people don't get a very good uh, uh, play even to this day. Scarcely will anyone die for them. Though perhaps for a good person, one might dare to die. Perhaps. So a good person would be someone where they've lived a good life, they've done a good thing, and you're so inspired by their actions, by the goodness of their life that you feel that you want to repay the favor, so to speak. You want to do a good thing for someone who has done a good thing. It's tit for tat, if you will. But, verse 8 shows us the reality of how God's love extends so far beyond the love of man. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, ungodly and weak, Christ died for us. Christ didn't die for good people. He died for those who were in active rebellion against him. Think of the thief on the cross, right? Who's right next to Jesus. Who most likely is a murderer. Very few people were crucified. It was the worst form of punishment. Looking at Jesus with nothing other than his prayer. Remember me when uh, you come into your kingdom. And Christ saying to him, I tell you this day you will be with me in paradise. Christ died for sinners. Christ died for us. It's really unheard of, this kind of love. If you were to read uh, a million works of fiction, of literature, you would see people dying for good people, for people they love because there was something lovable in them. But you'd never see anyone dying for an enemy. Dying for someone who is the exact opposite of them. It doesn't happen. It's not in the realm of human love. 
It goes against everything that's inside of us. Have you ever done this for anyone? To this level. To die for someone in their place. Now what's the significance of this? Why are you going into this, uh, Carlos? The point I'm trying to make is that there is no ulterior motive of God's love. It is not that there is some sort of beauty in us. Some sort of thing that we've done that makes us attractive to Him in our actions. We are enemies of God. The exact opposite of Him in our conduct, in our mentality. Enemies, if you will. And so this love of Christ has to be personal. Why did Christ die for me? Because He loved me. At the core of who I am, warts and all, enemy and all, His love is beyond that. He not only died for me, He showed His love to me. Notice what it says, but God shows His love for us. Now why did He do that? Why didn't He just do this behind the scenes? We wouldn't have to be sitting here contemplating this. Well, the reason is, just like you do, when you love someone, you want to show them your love, don't you? You desire to communicate. It's the act of love and the demonstration and showing of love that speak the love. And so we really do see how God has poured out into our hearts His love through the Holy Spirit. Now, why is Paul transitioning here in Romans 5 and talking about love and beginning with this point? And the reason is that God wants to ground our understanding of Christ's love not in our experience, but rather in the objective reality of what Christ has done. See, for many of us, our experience of God's love defines the depths of God's love. How I'm feeling at this point tells me how much God really loves me. It's kind of like putting the cart before the horse, isn't it? Well, I don't experience His love. I don't feel His love. I don't necessarily see His love in the circumstances around me. Therefore, He must not love me very much. And Paul is saying, oh no, you're looking at the wrong thing. I remember hearing a story, I don't know if it's true or not, the great prize fighter Jack Dempsey, who uh, was a, a fighter, I think, in the early 1900s. And Jack Dempsey was out doing his road work. He was running, and he came across a man who was fishing. And this man was throwing his line in, and he was catching a fish every single time. And Dempsey stopped to just stare at the wonder. This guy kept on bringing in fish, and then he noticed something very strange. Whenever Dempsey, excuse me, whenever this man would reel in a big fish, he'd throw it back. And yet whenever he caught a small fish, he'd keep it. Dempsey had never seen anything like this, so he had to stop and ask the guy. And he said, I, I see something I've never seen. When you get a big fish, you throw it back. But when you get a small fish, you keep it. What's, what's up with that? And the guy said, well, my frying pan is only this big. And so I can't fit the big fish in the frying pan. I can only fish, fit the small fish in the frying pan, so I keep the small fish. See, for many of us, that's what we do with God's love. I only have a small frying pan. And therefore, 
my understanding, my willingness to accept and receive and rest in God's love is based on the size of my heart rather than the size of your cross, rather than the reality of what you have done. And so, my friends, we must live and look to the objective reality of the cross. So I ask you, Christian, do you know who you were? Jesus came for sinners, for those who missed the mark. He came for the weak who didn't measure up. He came to the ungodly, those who acted opposite of God. And these were the people that Christ died for. You see, until you see that the cross is that which was done by you, necessitated by you, you cannot appreciate that it was done for you. If you look in the Bible, the people that loved Jesus the most were the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the lepers and the sinners. Because he who is forgiven much loves much. The point I'm trying to make is we must understand who we were. But we must not stay there. We must not continue to look at ourselves. But we must look at him. I love the quote of the Scottish theologian John Owen. For every one time that I glance at myself, I must glance a hundred times at him. The truth of the matter is for many of us, it's the exact opposite, isn't it? I glance at myself a hundred times and I only glance at Jesus once. I must reverse that. I must take my eyes off of myself and put my eyes on him. And the objective reality of his love for me rather than my subjective experience of it. Because God's love is not a subjective experience, but an objective reality. I must base my Christianity not simply on how I feel, but what he has done. I must look to him when I feel small. I must look to him when I don't feel loved, when I feel alone. I must go to his cross day after day, starting my day in the morning seeing the height and depth and breadth of his love based in history and reality, not in simple subjective experience. Christ came to save sinners. Are you one of them? I am. I was. Now I'm not a sinner who sins, I'm a saint who sins because of what he's done. The object of his love. Well, let's move on to number two, the timing of his love the scriptures say for while we were still weak at the right time Christ died for the ungodly I do like that phrase at the right time I think it's Hebrews 4 that puts it this way but when the fullness of time had come God sent forth his son what does it mean about at the right time Jesus came at a definitive time in history and when you think of that time in history many would say oh well that's you know with the the Roman government and koine the the, the language so that it could be spread but so much had already been done by that time right humanity 
the nation of Israel had been given the law, the laws of God for how they are to live. Long enough to see that they could not do it. That they could not obey the laws of God. The Greek philosophers had come along and seen the world and rationalized it and explained that which was true. And yet society had not been changed by the Greek philosophers. Rome and its government and its society and its systems had been put in place, bringing order, if you will, to the known world. And yet the depravity of man continued on. Despite philosophy and government and even knowing the laws of God, none of them could change the human heart. Well, that was then, Carlos. This is now. Well, what about now? We've traveled to the moon, though there is some question as to whether that happened or not. I can talk to you about that later. We have the internet where we can send a communication around the world in an instant of a second and have access to all the information that we could ever hope to ask. And yet when we go on the internet, has it created more virtue? Has it created more holiness? Has it created a more saner society? Has the morality of humanity changed? Has our new systems of government changed humanity? No, we're the same. There hasn't been any heart change. There's been no advantage for Jesus coming later as opposed to then. Because what the world needed and what we needed is hope. See, the right time means that we were lost. Just at the right time, when there were no answers, when there was no chance for humanity, when there was no hope, that is when Jesus entered into the world. Do you know that all Western movies are modeled after the gospel? I don't know if you knew that or not, but it's true. Let me demonstrate. Think about it. There's a town... Okay, and they're living along and doing their thing and all of a sudden evil rides into the town, right? Takes over. And none can stand against it, right? None can. The law that's there, the people who try to rally, it reigns supreme and darkness descends upon the land. And then the hero comes, right? Just one of them, by the way. And the hero always comes from out of town. Never rises up from within the people, does he? He's that guy you see in the distance riding his horse into town. And he suffers and he fights and despite all the odds, he destroys the overwhelming evil and restores the people to what they were meant to experience, right? That's Western movies. Where did they get that from? And he came at just the right time when all was lost, when all hope was gone. See, life is a stage, isn't it? And everybody has a part. So what's your part? Are you still fighting? Still trying to hit the bullseye? I can do this. I don't need salvation. I don't need a savior. I've got me. Maybe you've been around long enough to realize that thing ain't working. And you're defeated. 
but you've given up, you've lost hope. You're just sort of living your existence, counting out your minutes, watching your TV, waiting for the clock to run out. Or are you looking for a hero? Are you looking for a champion who's come in the fullness of time? For Christ came to save the lost. He defeated Satan on the cross. He defeated death by going into the tomb and rising again three days later. And he says to you and me, trust me. I'm making all things new. And so we must decide. Where is our confidence? Our confidence is before God. In Jesus. Who made us and is remaking us. When all seems lost. Look up to the heavens. Look to the cross. Not my subjective experience. For the truth of the matter is I don't have it. I won't. But he will. And I am in him and he is in me. I didn't, but he did. And I am in him and he is in me. I don't even want to. But he wants to. And I am in him and he is in me. Christ says, I have fought and died and risen again for you. So rest in his love. Well, how do I do that, Carlos? How do I rest in his love? Obey him. Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, so I have I love you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. The daily experience of Christ's love is linked to our obedience to him. It is not that his love is conditioned on our obedience. That would be legalism. But our experience of his love is dependent upon our obedience. We trust and we obey. And we let the feelings sort out as they may. God's love is not a subjective experience alone, but an objective reality. So base your Christianity not simply on how you feel, but rather what he's done. This brings me to my final point, the measure of his love. If you read this passage, these three verses, one word stands out. And that is the word, die. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How does one measure love? For some of you know, I'm an amateur builder. I like to build different things. Suspension bridges in my backyard. Masonry furnaces, small stuff, basically. Hobbies, and so I brought some of my measuring sticks, right? This one's pretty cool. You can adjust and you can choose the measurement and then you can move and do it somewhere else. I've got my classic tape measurer, right? 25 feet. I just got this one pretty recently. It measures a right angle. 
And so you punch it in, and then when you adjust it, it actually uh, adjusts it. And I, I've used it to adjust my face and sort of calibrate, uh, scientists calibrate their instruments uh, by my uh, d- dimensions of my face. The point is, I need to be able to measure to know exactly how much it is. All measurement sticks have a beginning and an end, don't they? A zero and a whatever, as this tape measure is. It starts at zero, it goes to infinity. Not this one, 25 feet. And so how do we measure love? Well, at one end of the spectrum is indifference, isn't it? That's zero. It's worse than hate. They don't even care about you. They don't even think about you. But on the other end of this measure is a number. I think we would call it how much one is willing to give for someone, right? Your car, your house, your fortune. I guess at the end of that spectrum would be your life, wouldn't it? For what else can one give than the ultimate of everything that you own, which is your life? But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How do we measure his love? It is the infinite of love, isn't it? It's the end of the spectrum. No one has gone any further for you. No one ever will. Do you measure his love by your circumstances? Many of us have endured horrible circumstances. Many of us are enduring them now. Do you measure his love by the love of your father? Or do you measure his love by the love that he demonstrated? But God demonstrates, measures out, shows his love for us in this. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You're beautifully and wonderfully made and remade in Christ's image. If you have given your life to Jesus Christ, it's an immeasurable love. Don't base your life or him on anything else. If you have not yet become a follower of Jesus, the gospel is not good at vice but it's good news not leaving telling you something you go need to do but rather something that he has done something that you can count on when everything else fails so the conclusion is quite simply this God wanted us to know indeed needed it to be this way without his death we have no life for we were worthy of death. God's love is not simply our subjective experience, but an objective reality. His life that was measured and poured out on the cross. God made him who had no sin to be sin, that we could be the very righteousness of God. So base your Christianity not on how you feel, But what he has done. One glance at me, yes. 
but a hundred glances at him. Let's pray. We thank you, God, that it was not enough to say, I love you. Indeed, the ransom price was death. But you showed it, Jesus, by dying publicly, shamefully, horribly, that we would know that there is no depth, there is no height, there is no breadth of love greater than the love that you have for us. Help us to fix our eyes on you. To glance at ourselves to be sure. But to glance at you for a hundred times. To become enveloped in your love. And to know this love that surpasses all words and knowledge and wisdom. That we may be filled with the fullness of God. This we pray in his name. Amen.